you, you might have to bear with me a little bit this morning. <clears throat> you can probably pick up that I'm on the way out of um, a man cold and I uh, faced a, a horrible situation this week where I, at the same time, had a, had a man cold as uh, Sherilyn had a birthday. <laughs> Generally, I feel like Sherilyn's um, happy that she married me. Uh, there's probably two situations where it, I have some cause to doubt. One is when I somehow transgress against a ridiculously sophisticated recycling system at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Graham's, Graham's really laughing because he's got enough insight into that. There's 16 different baskets at our house. Those of you who just have two bins can be grateful. Um, and the... <laughs> Not when, you, not when you drive them around the city to different places that will recycle bread clips. And, uh, and the other time is when I'm sick. Uh, it's like, I don't know if, if this is a somewhat universal experience for husbands, but you really feel uh, like, you know, you're, uh, you've let the side down when you're sick. There's no sympathy, that's for sure. Um, anyway... Uh, I'm good, we'll get there. As Pastor Graham's mentioned already this morning, we're continuing our series on um, the church, which we've called We Are, and I believe there might be, oh, there we go, I'm looking at a different screen to you guys. How did you do that, Ben? Do you know all those words off by heart? Okay, well, there you go. Um, so, uh, we're looking at uh, the image of the temple this morning. Um, so, we've called this series, We Are. If we are a part of God's people, if we are um, the church, who are we? And, um, and so far in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've looked at Luke 3.16, which spoke to us about the fact that if we are the church, we are the community of the Holy Spirit uh, we also looked at Romans 12, 3 to 8, which spoke to us about the fact that we are the members of the body of Christ. If we are the church, we're members of the body of Christ. When it first came to my mind that we should spend uh, a little bit of time looking at this topic, uh, this topic of the church, I felt that some of the benefit actually in drilling into these biblical images of the church might actually come um, from uh, the way that uh, these biblical images might uncover some of our assumptions about who we are as the church. Uh, we can be travelling along um, with an understanding of what the church is that might be based on the things that we do commonly as a part of the church. Uh, we might also have a picture of the church that comes to us from popular culture. Uh, it seemed... Uh, worthy and worthwhile to actually interrogate that a little bit with um, what the Bible says because some of these pictures might be unhelpful that aren't from the Bible. So as much as we might see who we are as the church in this process, it's been my hope that we might also see who we should not be or who we are not as the church where we filled that gap with other stuff. We are not. Um, if we are the community of the Spirit, subject to the Spirit of the world, 
or subject to the spirit of the age, as Scripture sometimes talks about it. As the community of the spirit, um, we are not uh, just autonomous individuals. Um, we are incorporated. Uh, this, these pictures of the of the church tell us one with another into the life of God, into life with each other. We're not really free to pursue our own ends as our unbelieving neighbours might be. Um, as members of the body of Christ, though, we're not members of some kind of cult where we need to repress our individuality, and this is what I spoke about last week. Uh, we have unique passions, giftings, and personalities. Um, that it is our calling, our vocation to outwork in community. Um, and I think that these two uh, pictures that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, the community of the Spirit, uh, the body of Christ, lay a really good foundation for our passage this morning, which is 1 Corinthians 3.16. And it's a short one. And uh, I think this message could be quite short uh, because this is fairly straightforward in some ways. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? The first thing I'd like to make note of from this passage is that it's fitting with the language of community and the language of body that Corinthians speaks not of temples, plural, but of temple. Our identity in the church is singular, in a sense, is unified. Of course, when the first readers of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth thought about the temple, they would have uh, been thinking about Israel's temple in Jerusalem. So, we're not we're not multiple temples, but we're one temple in Christ. But yet, the original readers would have, they would have had this picture in their head, the, the uh, majestic temple in Jerusalem. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, you might be aware. Uh, it was a structure that was famous throughout the ancient world for uh, the, the level of craftsmanship that was involved with it, its, it's beauty, its sort of imposing structure. It's also likely that um, those early Christians who read Paul's letter uh, addressed to the church in Corinth uh, might have been aware of some of the kind of cryptically critical things that Jesus had said about the temple and also about his behaviour uh, in the instance where he near caused a riot by driving those who were selling animals um, for sacrifice out of the temple. So you'll probably know that story from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus goes in, he's incensed by something he sees there, which we'll unpack in a, a little bit. Um, but he, he, he does something really uh, that many people feel was sort of was the thing that sealed his death. Um, he disrupts the flow of the temple kind of practice for sacrifice by, um, by casting uh, the, those who are selling animals for sacrifice out and tipping their tables over. So the original readers would have had 
both of these things in their mind, that Jesus had some issues with the temple and that he showed that by actually going in and doing something about it. What was Jesus's problem with the temple exactly? Well, to answer uh, that question comprehensively would require a bit more time than we have together this morning. But um, we get a fair degree of insight into some of the issues that he had. Um, When we look at what he says as he's driving those sellers out of of the temple courts, as he's turning over their tables... Um, And we can find this in Matthew 21. It is written, Jesus said to them, you could probably even say it without uh, me saying it, couldn't you? My house, can you? Will be a house of prayer for the nations, but you are making it a den of robbers. I, I didn't really plan uh, not to show you the scripture then and to get you to say it but I'm glad I did because you proved a little point that I was going to make it is written says Jesus my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people for the nations but you make it a den of robbers you know that um, bit in brackets there for the nations for all people actually isn't in the text of Matthew it's implied Um, because you might know that Jesus is quoting another passage there. He's quoting Isaiah, and Isaiah does say, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. In these words that Jesus sort of, you can imagine him angrily shouting them, um, he's making reference to, uh, to two of the prophets of Israel's tradition. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with the prophets, that, there's a sense in which actually the prophets were the experts in, um, in the law. Uh, the prophets were the ones who, who really understood uh, God's heart and, um, and the tradition that was uh, being passed down Um, through uh, Jewish religion and through the scriptures because they performed this function uh, in the life of Israel where they called people back to God's vocation, where they called people back to the scripture, where they saw um, that the people were wandering from God's intention for them. They said, come back to scripture and live up to that calling on us that God has put there. So, the prophets that Jesus is um, quoting here, Isaiah and Jeremiah, will just take a quick look at the sections that he quotes. Um, that section, uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, comes from Isaiah 56. And if you read that chapter, um, chapter 56 of uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah speaks to God's intention that Israel and her temple would be a blessing to the nations. The passage actually in multiple uh, places, so the chapter, um, speaks of foreigners, Gentiles, binding themselves to the God of Israel and worshipping him. So Isaiah is saying, actually, the intention of the temple (laughs) is for all humanity, not 
just that it would be a place of worship for, for, for the Jews, but that God would be revealing himself to the whole of humanity such that those from around the nations, from around the world, would be able to come and worship. They would have a revelation of a God who loves them, who is for them, and that they could worship with God's people, the Jews, at the temple. We can see this in Isaiah 56, verse 7. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain. So even the Gentiles will I bring to my holy mountain. And I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the people. That's something, isn't it? It's really something. The section from Jeremiah that uh, Jesus is, is quoting um, comes from Jeremiah 7. You can see it here. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. If you were to go and spend just probably would take you 15 minutes um, to read through Jeremiah chapter 6 and 7, you'll see that Jeremiah is speaking of a situation where the people of Israel are assuming that their safety and security amongst the nations who they were often in tension with, that their safety and security uh, was on the basis of the temple. So there was even this uh, sense uh, for the Jews of Jeremiah's time that they need only sort of uh, settle close to the temple, almost like the closer they were to Jerusalem, the safer they were, because no uh, nation could possibly overcome them whilst God dwelt in the temple. But Jeremiah is warning the people because all the while they have this sense of security in the very existence of the temple as God's dwelling place. They are betraying their vocation to care for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. And those chapters speak about those three parties over again. Those who were poor and marginalised, the foreigner, the alien, the refugee, the fatherless, those who um, can't be protected or provided for and the widow likewise. We are safe, the people seem to be saying in uh, chapter 7, because of the temple. Um, the people uh, say in verse 10, we are safe even to do the detestable. So as long as we have proximity to the temple, this is their assumption, this is what Jeremiah is kind of having a go at them for, they're safe to live as they please. Jeremiah warns them, this is not the case. God sees the way that you neglect the poor, the marginalised. And he doesn't see a temple, but a den of robbers. So these are some of the issues that Jesus had with what had become of the temple for Israel. It was a place 
intended to serve God's heart for the foreigner, for the fatherless and for the widow, and yet it did not. It had become a place of self-service for uh, the people of Israel. Um, And in fact, uh, in Jesus' time, as in Jeremiah's, it had become a symbol of uh, Israel's sort of quite ardent nationalism. (laughs) So no reality that the nations could come. Actually, it was that thing against uh, which um, the Jews define themselves. You know, so the the Jews define themselves against their neighbours by saying, we have the temple and you're not allowed here. Um, And the people had begun to assume that they were safe, not on the basis of their alignment with God and his heart, but on the basis of the temple itself. And so we see a situation here where the lines had become blurred between the holy and the unholy. This was Jesus' issue. <laughs> the lines had become blurred. The question um, I find myself asking is where could this risk happening for me? this blurring of the lines? Where could this risk happening for us in our time and place? We might not have temples as such, but we likely risk having places where the lines become blurred between the holy and the unholy to the extent that our worship and even our life together as Christians might become more about us than others. And um, this picture's... (laughs) not meant to sort of decry any particular approach to worship but I just wanted to prompt a picture where you know I, I, I actually don't think there's anything wrong and I don't think God thinks there's anything wrong with um, great aesthetics pursuing excellence um, you know with, with a, what we might think of as a great worship experience but the caveat would be <laughs> that we're not having an amazing worship experience at the expense of actually being the people that God calls us to be. If we are putting on um, a, a worship experience that rivals, uh, I was going to say U2 concert, but that dates me terribly, doesn't it? Ed Sheeran, yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if Ed Sheeran quite uh, ever pulled off uh, anything like you two did, but yeah, Ed Sheeran, well, thank, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Chris. You work at a high school, you would know, um, Ed Sheeran. You know, if we're putting all this effort into that, but like the people that um, Jeremiah decried, we're not caring for those whom God would have us care for. If not, there's not a pathway into our life of worship for all sorts of people, then we risk worshipping in a den of robbers, maybe. Those who know me will know that I don't have an anti-Catholic bone in my body. And actually, I'd, I'd really like to go and see St Peter's Basilica. It, it's obviously an, an amazing achievement But I put this picture up, Um, so that's St Peter's chair there inside the basilica. I put this picture up um, because of the possibility that our buildings and our relationship to them carries the same risk that I think the passage is um, getting us to think about this morning.
If you know the story of how um, St. Peter's Basilica was funded, then you'll know that uh, very often it was the poor who were hit up for money. And one of the ways uh, that this was happening and this really uh, was instrumental in the whole Reformation and and Luther doing his thing was that um, the church found a way, (laughs) the Pope of the time, to sell to the poor the promise that their relatives could be released early from purgatory should they make a donation. Yeah, we go, oosh. Because <laughs> it's just wrong, isn't it? It's just wrong. And it must, I, I believe there's genuine uh, Christians that are, are doing what they're doing in that building. But geez, that must be a weird thing <laughs> to be there and feel the conflict of that. Something I would never <laughs> want to have to feel. The unholy and the holy being blurred in that way. One of the things that Pastor Graham has been unwavering about in his time here as senior pastor is uh, guarding against a situation where our church building serves us, but not our community. And what are those things in which we might hold our security rather than God himself? Could we risk placing too much trust in the government, in political parties, or in economics? As Christianity loses cultural influence, could there be a temptation to pursue ostensibly holy ends that's of sort of stemming the flow of the cultural tide through the unholy means of worldly power? Let me take this as we um, come to an end and I'll get uh, the band up. We're going to share communion in a while, in a moment. Let me take this out of the realm of the abstract, if I can, and personalise this for us. And forgive me for posing some potentially confronting questions for us here. Do we interrogate the ways that we might be part of a den of robbers rather than a holy temple? Are we serving the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow? How? As individuals, (laughs) but as a community too, are we doing these things? What are those things besides God himself in which we hold our security. Where might the lines blur between religion or faith and our personal agendas? There's actually a liberty for me in posing these questions. Um, in the sense that I don't think I can probably answer them any more convincingly than you do. And I'm very aware of the way uh, in which this community is just, um, in lots of ways, the sum of who we are as individuals. You know, we, we're not hitting this out of the park. 
so much work for the Spirit still to do in us. God knows that. In Hebrews 10, the author uses language referent to the temple. It says, uh, verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all the time one sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. The takeaway for that. (laughs) Is that. He's the temple first. He's the Holy One. He's the one that makes a way for the foreigner. We're foreigners to the temple. He's the one who gives an account for our sins and forgives them. He's the one whose spirit empowers us. to live as we ought.